0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Pastor Talk Podcast. We are thrilled to have you join us again as we continue on through this series, uh, Presby What? It's been a privilege having you join us for this. Uh, We've got lots of feedback from people, uh, lots of them who've been in the Presbyterian Church for quite a while. And um, some who grew up in other Christian traditions, maybe Methodist, Lutheran, Catholic, and saying that you know there's been some things in this that have been interesting. So, uh, thanks for that feedback, everyone. We continue on with our conversation today, in which we're going to sort of pivot from a conversation in which we were talking a little bit about some of the uh, last 30, 40 years of trends in the church to thinking about uh, sort of what what do we look forward to the church's response to these challenges we've seen, uh, some of them in the rearview mirror, and some of them are are really present in our current conversation. So, we're calling that the next chapter, and uh, it's going to be a wide-ranging conversation, thinking about what the Presbyterian of tomorrow is going to look like.
1: Yeah, today is a, probably the most subjective of the sessions that we've done, Michael. This is our predictions and you know there's a proverb that says only fools predict the future so that <laughs> may apply but as as we look forward to the challenges that the presbyterian church is going to have to face what do we think they look like and what do we think that they demand from the church not only at the national level but at the congregational level how do they impact presbyterians in their day-to-day life and we certainly don't have these answers. Th- these are guesses on our part, we hope, informed and thoughtful guesses. But we do see some things as we have talked and as we have um, really put lots of thought into this over the years of the kind of things that the Presbyterian Church is going to have to figure out if we're going to survive that long-standing downward trend, that this period in which we are aging in our average membership numbers and age, as we are shrinking in our number of churches, as we are closing churches, as we are losing money, uh, we talked about lots of those negative things. And if that continues, you know that's got an in, that doesn't have an indefinite shelf life. That can only happen for a certain amount of time, and before there's really just not enough resources left, and so. Um, Not to paint too dire of a picture, but if the PCUSA doesn't figure some of this out, I think it's likely to predict that this version of it, at least, won't be sustainable in the future. And so, what would it look like for Presbyterians to be sustainable? And that's kind of where we're putting our thoughts today.
0: Yeah, and I don't want to spend too much time getting hung up on first things, but I do just have... A couple other things I want to mention here. And the first is there's a, there's several points in our conversation today, Clint, where I have good friends, uh, who are Presbyterians who are going to disagree with us. And there may be moments in which we point that out. There are differing ways of understanding what the path forward might look like for Presbyterians. And so that is just couched in the fact that though we have two voices, there are many out there in the Presbyterian church at large. And I think the second thing which surprised me significantly when I went to seminary and really dug into the Presbyterian community, um, really following my undergraduate school time, Clint, is is really how little conversation there is on this topic versus what you would expect there might be. Now, maybe that's happening in places that I'm not aware of. In fact, that's likely. Um, but I will say you you might think that a young person going through seminary in which a moment in which the decline of the church is obvious, that's a fact. There's no one who would dispute that reality. You might think that the seminary education, the sort of national conversation that is made available to people going through training, you would think that there would be a lot of emphasis upon what paths the church should be taking, both at a national level, but also at a local level. And in my limited anecdote, Total experience was that that there was almost no conversation around that, and so. I do think that's telling. It, it's not necessarily uh, good or bad because there may be conversations happening that you know, I'm not privy to, but I do think it's worth saying that there's not sort of a national voice. There's not a particular leader. There, there's not particularly one strain of this conversation, and that I do think is unto itself a challenge that Presbyterianism writ large is going to have to deal with in the coming days.
1: Yeah, you know, you could assume that once a ship hits an iceberg, all the following conversation is about, what do we do not to sink? Right. And that's an exaggeration, of course. But I have not, in my own time in the PCUSA, heard that kind of urgency. There is this hope, I think, this kind of optimism that things are cyclical And that we'll figure it out and that it'll come back around. I think that's getting a little harder to maintain. I think that more and more people are just kind of hoping that it happens after their watch. You know, maybe that it's down the road further than they need to worry about. Again, that might not be entirely fair. There are some conversations at the national level about starting new ministry projects, and, and there are some organizations that have formed either theologically or practically about addressing some of these issues. But I I would agree with you, Michael. I've not heard – I think part of that is that maybe the strain is so difficult for your average congregation that they're so busy trying to tread water mm-hmm. that they just don't have the resource and the bandwidth to engage in the big problem conversation because at the small problem conversation, they're trying to pay the bills and they're trying to fix the heater and they're trying to get a couple of families to come to church. And they're trying to figure out if they have, if they have the resources to do Sunday school and whatever that looks like in their particular context. But maybe that keeps us from, maybe you have to have that conversation from a certain amount of stability that in many places um right now doesn't feel like it exists.
0: Yeah, and that's maybe the first point that we need to address together is the reality that we're not on a sure-footed foundation denominationally. And you could frame that differently, you could frame it in terms of finances, you could frame it in terms of leadership. Uh, capability. You could frame it in terms of congregational membership, but really the trend has been downward in most of those metrics. We have less money directly accessible than we used to. We have less people in the pews and therefore less um, experience, less time that might be volunteered. And as that happens, uh, the church has been addressing differing levels of responsive concern to that. So, as uh, we have less people in the pews. There's been significant conversations in congregations. Can we still do VBS? Can we still put together a, a all-day program? Or can we put together a night program? And I, I do think you can really see a national conversation lived out in practical terms at the congregational level, if you looked at how the programs in each congregation have changed in the last 10, 15, 20 years, and I guarantee you, almost without exception, you're going to see that there's been some form of adaptation or change at these levels trying to address the the problems that have come with this slow decline.
1: Yeah, I think the average congregation out there is trying to do some version of what they used to do with less money, less people, less staff, less resources than they had when they were doing it. And that's a hard place to live and maybe doesn't give us time for some of those, you know, how do you fix the big problem when you when you have to fix a 100 smaller problems first. And there might be truth to that. The one thing as we start this conversation, Michael, I think we should also say is that we are fundamentally, as we have this, um, as, as we undertake these conversations, we're fundamentally talking about change. And there is this wonderful phrase that I picked up somewhere early on in my ministry, I think from a management book, if you keep doing what you're doing, you will keep getting what you're getting. And the idea is that if we continue to give the same input, we will continue to give the same output. It is amazing how often in the church we hope that doing the same thing will produce different results. And it fundamentally is a flawed idea we will have to change some things if we're going to navigate this next part of our future if we're going to survive i'd rather say thrive i I mean i don't think survival is a is an appropriate goal if we're going to thrive Mm -hmm. in the next era that is ours to be presbyterian we're going to have to do things differently than we used to we're going to have to build new patterns, new structures we're going to have to change some things and that is always painful for people who have a vested interest in the past but it's a it's a fundamental truth of moving forward that what got you here won't take you there and it it doesn't some of those things simply don't work in the same way anymore they're not as productive they're they're, they're not as fruitful, and yet we keep doing them, um, in some cases, riding them into the ground, and it doesn't work. So um, we could have lots of conversation about the difficulties in congregations to address change, but it's simply in this conversation you and I take for granted that we can't keep doing things the way we've done them and get different results.
0: Yeah, I think a rather short illustration of that is uh, the human condition is by itself innately adverse to change. Right now, Walmart is doing remodeling, and I hate going to Walmart because I cannot find anything. I just wish they'd leave Walmart alone. (laughs) That's innate to the human condition. But even more so, I think, in religious institutions, in churches, it is hard for us to change because we're not just going to pick up milk there's something about our family uh, our kids have been baptized there we've maybe even been married there we, we've shared both life joy sadness grief within this wall these walls within this community we there's a part of us in church and in a meaningful and and in many cases healthy way but Rochelle and I th- this can go to an extreme Rochelle and I went to England we had the privilege of going to England with some friends and I, being who I am, I wanted to go tour some churches. So we went to some country churches. And Clint, I was struck by two. One was a church that we walked into, pristine, clean, perfect and almost void of life. At the back of the church, there was a pamphlet with all of the historical information meticulously put together about all of the influential people who had attended that church, whose pew was whose, who was buried in the church. This was a Church of England church, so that was uh, normal there. And, and it was clear that this was a beloved but preserved church. Then we went to another small town. Uh, There was a church off the beaten path. We walked into this church, and there were toys strewn across the back pew, and there was posters sort of cockeyed on the wall, and it just breed, the space itself clearly demonstrated people live here. This is somebody's church home. People come here every week. This is a living congregation. And that is the reality. Are we willing to sort of let the sanctuary change? That's that's a small example, Clint, but the, the kind of signs of life require us to be willing to let change happen so that the church, the place for people can continue to welcome more people. And when we stop doing that, we move closer to that first church, which was more of a museum than a community.
1: Yeah, And, you know, Michael, there there again, there's kind of a a management business entrepreneurial rule that um, if you're afraid to fail, you increase the chances that you will. And I think in the church, we have often been afraid to try new things or to do things differently because, quote, unquote, they may not work. But the truth is, if if we don't try new things, many of which may fail, we we will struggle to find the ones that don't, the ones that succeed. And so that's a change to our nature. And I think going forward, we're going to have to be more willing to to try things, to experiment. We're going to have to adapt in ways. And that's not, as we've talked about our history, that's not where we come. We are thoughtful. We love to plan. We love to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and have everything ready to go. And we're in an era that may not let us do that to the extent that we'd like. If you look at the business world, one of the the transitions that seems to have happened, at least this is an analysis by people who I think know way more than I do, is that we've moved from the, the kind of corporate structure that we see in the Presbyterian Church to a much more nimble management style. And so the idea of monthly meetings and annual Consultations and all of the things we do structurally—that has a lot of bandwidth and sucks up a lot of energy. And I, I think some very wise people are asking in the church: Is that still a sustainable structure? We live—we live in an era where if something happens in China, we're hearing about it in five to ten minutes. If something is going on in the country, we have access to it almost instantly in the device in our pocket. And yet we have to wait a year to approve a budget, a month to have a meeting. We, we have this sort of slow, cumbersome structure that has served us well, but I think the future is going to demand that Presbyterians find ways to be more nimble and to handle business in a, uh, a less cumbersome way.
0: Right. I, it, this Last six months is in many ways proof of that. Congregations who were nimble were able to quickly uh, sort of face the new day. What tools do we need for our worship services online? And how are we going to do that? That required a congregational willingness to engage quickly. If you send that to committee and ask, what are we going to do? That a month later, maybe you have a few ideas and not even solutions. And I think we do like the idea as Presbyterians of this sort of larger, higher conversation that then sort of slowly trickles down through the system, that we go to the General Assembly and that they talk about a national issue, and then they make a proposal that's been in committee for five years. And we feel good that our seminary professors have thought about it and wrote about it, prayed about it. And and we, we like the idea that then that goes to presbyteries, and they do the same. They discern, they vote. And all of this has its time and place. There's certainly, moments in which utilizing the entire, to use the language, corporate structure matters. But Clint, there's also this reality that what the uh, First Presbyterian Church in Spirit Lake needs right now to be faithful may be significantly different than what First Presbyterian Church of Jamaica, Queens needs right now, or First Presbyterian Church of Chicago or Second Indianapolis, right? Wherever you are, we as a church need to be mindful of our immediate context and that requires a kind of nimbleness in leadership in both the pastoral leadership but also congregational committee uh, session both and I would even go as far as to say uh, congregational members willingness to be uh, to be nimble in the season, to to allow some grace for experimentation. Otherwise, none of this really matters.
1: Yeah, and you think about the average congregation. Take us, for example. We need 24 leaders. We have two boards, our elders and our deacons, 12 apiece, Meaning that every year we're electing people for a three year term, which also means that every year a third of your leaders are brand new, mm-hmm. have to be brought up to speed. It, it also means that in a congregation, you're looking for, you know some significant percentage of those who attend regularly and and are members to serve in those leadership roles. And for many churches, that is uh, taxing. Here, we are very fortunate with the level of volunteerism, with the level of skill, and it's not an issue in a place like this. But when you get to those smaller churches, they're struggling just to have a session. And you, you hold that, you know, practically, you hold that over against, say, the community church model, which has a small leadership team they they don't have twelve committees. They don't have ten. Com- they have a very small leadership team that is nimble. That is vested with lots of authority, which is of course a risk. But it, it's a much it's a much it's a structure that is much more able to navigate quickly and to make decisions. Um, you can let a kind of leadership personality grow through a change like that. And and I'm not advocating that the Presbyterian Church needs to get rid of how we govern congregations, but I I do think that places that are doing well are largely not doing it the way that we're doing it across the board.
0: I think to connect that to a previous conversation, Clint, we have already talked about how structurally the Presbyterian Church has pushed a lot of leadership down the chain. It's, it's pushed it Uh, Closer to the congregational level. And that is both a blessing and a curse. If a congregation has leadership, has congregants who are willing to engage with that newfound sort of ability that comes through the nimbleness, then that can be good news. If you're a congregation who doesn't have some of those resources in leadership and in willingness, those congregations are and are going to continue to struggle because the more and more that we decentralize and we push down towards the local, we enable congregations to respond to their community. But if they're not ready for that, they're going to be congregations who will struggle under the weight of that responsibility.
1: Yeah, and again, as a a pastor who's been blessed to have many instances of great session members and great teams of people on the session, that's when things get done. When you have that group of people, and to see them rotate off when they are not Done serving, when they would stay, and when they would, the kind of leadership that that could provide would be interesting. And I, and I think that's a, th- a place that the Presbyterian Church, our leadership structure, is going to have to be reconsidered, it seems to me, as we move forward. The, the other disconnect that I think you and I have talked about a great deal, um, it's overstated, but this idea of print culture versus digital culture. And you don't have to hang along, hang around the Presbyterian Church very often to realize that we are probably it is fair to call us print culture people. We're mm-hmm. still printing bulletins. Our people are still reading books. With I'm what I mean is covers, pages, mm-hmm. physical books. Um, we have hymnals. We have pew Bibles. You know, and. And Presbyterians, we have been good at that. We we have done that well. But that's not the world. We have been, and you would know this better than most, we have been slow to embrace web technology. We've been slow to embrace social media. Those are things that the Presbyterian Church has struggled to incorporate. And it's partly, it's not just that we're not good at them. I, I don't think that's fair. It is that they're not part of our culture, they're not part of how we've done things.
0: Yeah, Clint, that is an interesting place. We could probably have a whole conversation of that just because I have more opinions than I do, but I I think that we as a church do bring helpful questions to the conversation of digital, right? Because we've already talked about in these conversations about how Presbyterians are unfairly, you might call us, um, skeptical But we're certainly critical, and and we're thoughtful, and we come to technology and we say, hey, you know what, Uh, just because it's on a screen doesn't make it good, and we want to have some theological reflectiveness and some nuance, and all of that, Clint, I think we need to bring to the table. But we have, in many cases, allowed that to hamstring us to keep us from going into places and experiencing and trying what it might be like. And I do think that one of the marks of a church's health is their willingness to speak to people who aren't immediately in the circle, right? To keep the doors open so that people might find themselves welcome. And the reality is we live in a day in which many of people's first encounter with churches is not inside our narthexes or our sanctuaries, but rather on their device, And that is maybe not a thing that we're entirely comfortable with, but if we're not aware of it and take it seriously, there will be people that we will miss an opportunity to welcome physically in the name of Jesus Christ. And so, I think we do need to start being mindful that we shouldn't put all of our eggs into one basket, but we should seek to try to reach the largest group of people that we can for the gospel, and that's going to require us making some uncomfortable moves into spaces we've not traditionally been comfortable in.
1: Yeah, and you know, you think of this practically, what does a church need in order to grow? A a church needs participation, and ideally, in, in the best sense, a church is going to see that participation over a full spectrum of the age range. And that means with some of your lifelong Presbyterians and those who are maybe retirement aging up, they're, we're, we're good at that. We reach out to those folks well. We're accessible. But if you think from about somewhere in the mid-40s, I suppose, or maybe even call it 40 and down, so what we might call young people, quote-unquote, or yo- even young families— the the ways in which they receive information about the church the ways in which they search for a congregation the things they're looking for it's a very different pathway now i think that i think that they both appreciate the same things they both appreciate mm-hmm. community they both appreciate openness welcome warmth but they get to your congregation in very different ways one is sort of word of mouth and the other is very much with those digital tools. And a church that isn't trying to do all of that is, I, I think, in some ways really hampering their, their mission to, out, to do outreach to the, what we might call the younger part of the, of the age range.
0: You know, I don't want this at all to sound like um, back-padding. It is, though, a learning that's happened from what you've already described as experimentation. What happens when you experiment, you learn things you wouldn't expect. One of the things that I've learned during this COVID season, Clint, is that we will have a response from younger people to Bible studies in a digital space than what I expected. Let me give you an example. I was just literally having a conversation with a young person in their thirties who has never been to a men's Bible study at First Presbyterian Church. It would have landed at a time that they couldn't have participated, who has told me that every day that they can, they watch the daily Bible study at work, that that's a space and time that they can access and they enjoy that. And it struck me, oh, wow, just by simply changing the context, we've enabled this individual to now engage with a ministry of the church, in this case, on a daily basis. Now, that's not necessarily just because it worked in one person's life, you do it forever, never changing. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I am suggesting is when you experiment, you do find out in, in these instances, oh, wait, we can reach people that we weren't reaching before if we try this thing. Maybe that's a thing we need to take seriously.
1: Yeah, and i i think you know that's a place that lots of churches struggle and to be honest it's not a place that i've seen a lot of resources from our denomination our national church i i don't think helps at the grassroots level in terms of how do we use the technology and tools how do we evaluate them how do we apply them and and how can we um How can we incorporate them into how we're doing things in order to do them better, to do them well? I think that will certainly be uh, ground that we're going to have to cover. I, I don't think culture is going to let us continue to be lazy in those areas or to be uninvolved in those areas.
0: Right. Well, because we live in a moment that's filled with tensions and filled with opposition in the cultural space, in the larger culture that surrounds us. And Clint, that problem is writ large within our own Presbyterian family. We we are really struggling with a tension between um, unity as people of Christ who are bound together by our faith and our common affirmation, and unanimity, that we are all going to be the same, that we're all going to think the same, that we're all going to register the vote the same. Uh, we are on a national level, and I think even we could, most Presbyterians could even point to this at the local congregational level. We are, we are struggling in our larger context to remain faithful to the unity that we have in Christ, as, as there seems to be much uh, deeper, rutted paths that uh, are happening in our public discourse, Presbyterians are finding themselves taking some similar stances on opposite sides, and that makes it difficult, I think, for us to continue to work forward on some of the things that require our unity in Christ.
1: Yeah, and in some ways, we have been a a church that has pursued diversity. Michael, I I think you'd have to say, particularly in the Sexuality, gender conversations that we've had over the last 30 years. There is a large segment of the Presbyterian Church that has been very concerned and passionate about being open to the the full range of people within our uh, cultural experience. But in other areas, I think we have struggled, uh, specifically racial, ethnic. I think that we We talk a great deal about diversity. We don't practice it very well at the local level. Um, There are very, very few congregations in the Presbyterian Church that you can walk into on a Sunday morning when that happened, used to happen, and you're going to find a mixed racial crowd. You may find um, some diversity, but it's going to be individuals here and there, Uh, an African-American family, an an Asian family. Um, And in this part of the world where diversity is not a strength to begin with, that's certainly going to be true. But really across the board, Presbyterians have, uh, we have been fairly well contained in white middle-aged, white middle class. And we're going to have to break out of that for the Presbyterian Church to be strong and thriving in the future, is going, I think, to demand that we find a way to incorporate our church throughout different groups, different neighborhoods, different life experiences. Um, And, you know— the 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 gender sexuality stuff it, it has some theological tension in it, and there are people that have different views on that and, and argue arguments. As we well know, we've been obsessed with that argument for decades in the PCUSA. But the racial ethnic, there's no such theological. I mean, that's something we have to do. We claim that we want to be the church, and we know that the church, the gospel, is for all people. And we don't, just to be blunt, we don't do a very good job of living that out in our Presbyterian membership, and I think we're going to have to get better. The, The idea of sort of single statistic churches is just not I, – I think that's not a space we're going to be able to occupy in the future. We are going to have to be um, more diverse and more conscious of that.
0: You know, I think Presbyterians need to get there, and the only way that we can get there, Clint, is that we emphasize the gospel, the mission of Jesus Christ given to the church, and to be less concerned about the sort of cultural framework, the issues that surround us. And by and large, Presbyterians are now alone in this. Other mainline congregations are the same. We are tempted to adopt wholesale the framework of issues that are in public discourse. But that's not always a helpful model we are often, because of Christ's call to love our neighbor, and yes, even our enemy, we often as Christians come to conversations being had in the wider culture with a kind of grace for both parties or with a nuanced perspective on both issues. And the Presbyterian Church has, at its worst, uh, it has walked some of those lines of picking issues uh, that you have to Sort of beyond this side or that side. And there are times in which having a stance matter. Don't hear me as being a relativist, but I do think that there are important moments in which we are committed to going out to baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ, to remind and tell the world that surrounds us that Jesus Christ loves and forgives us and desires to be in relationship with us. And Clint, we so often, Churches are much quicker to go in and pay thousands of dollars to get a sign that they put in their front yard than they are moved to go and invite their neighbor to church or to go and bring food to the person who just had surgery and to sit with them even if they're not a church member, right? We, we sometimes forget the power of relationship, the power of going and sharing love and grace with other people for doing the work of Christ in the world, and, in, and we sort of replace that for stances on issues and signs and bulletins. And, and, and I do think that we need to, in some ways, reframe away from some of the easier things that we've committed to towards the more difficult relational things that strike much closer to the scriptural account of what we're called to be. Yeah,
1: in some ways, Michael, I would say this is a contrast to some of what we've talked about earlier. In in this sense, there are places, say the print versus digital, say the diversity versus uniformity. There are places where I think we have to move toward the culture around us. We we want to follow some of the example. The world is becoming more diverse. The world is becoming more nimble. The world is becoming more digital. And to function in that world, we need to at least take some small steps that direction. In this regard, I would say just the opposite. Right. The world is becoming more divisive. The world is becoming more issue, single issue driven. The, the world is happy to hold up a sign and a chant a slogan for a couple of days until the next one happens and then go on. And I think in that regard, the church can't follow. We we can't do that. We cannot be single-focused. We cannot just go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. We have to stand in a place where we say the gospel determines our response and our engagement with the issues of the world. It's not the issue for its own sake. It's what the issue has to do with being the people of Jesus Christ, which is our central and unchanging mission. And the issues will come and go to some extent, but I i think we do ourselves a disservice when we simply jump on the next bandwagon. And, and I'm not accusing... The Presbyterian Church of doing that, though there are times when we move quickly from thing to thing, and it sort of feels that way.
0: Yeah, actually, this is the point in the conversation where I wanted to say, uh, I have close friends who are going to argue at this point in the juncture that we're wrong, and that the church needs to be more clear focused on issues and make clear statements and with a kind of I would argue uniformity, they would argue unity, move forward towards addressing those issues. I think the temptation in doing that, however, is to, or rather not the temptation, the, the weakness of that is the closer you get to adopting the cultural framework of issues, the farther I think you are from being able to evaluate that. From a gospel lens. And we're often compelled to do things that are far more nuanced than what the cultural conversation is capable of doing. Uh, the church has a long history of running into cities to save those who are sick while everybody else in the city is running out. And some of those people who are sick would have been enemies of the people running in to save them. I, I think the church has, at its best, been driven by the love of Christ for neighbor and for enemy. And so, therefore, Clint, we have to call upon a higher order, uh, both morally, but also, I think, theologically. And to whatever extent we allow ourselves to become pigeonholed in one issue or even four issues, I think we begin to lose some of that uh, theological authenticity that we find in being unified, truly unified in Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, I'm making that sound easy. It's not. There are going to be those who say that you're forsaking gospel issues in doing that, and there are going to be substantive disagreements about how to move forward in that context. But however we do so, I do think we we need to be mindful of a higher calling than just sort of engaging in single-issue conversations.
1: Yeah, I want to be clear that neither of us is saying that the issues don't matter. The issues are vitally important. And right. and what we're not suggesting is that we skip over them and and ignore them or not pay attention to them. I think what what I'm saying, Michael, is those are moments when our heritage of being a little on the slow and thoughtful side probably help us. And culturally, we seem to be losing that... That moment of pausing to reflect before we act and speak. And I think the church offers some wisdom there in being able to say, it, it, this issue does matter, but let's make sure we've given it due diligence. Let's make sure we have thoughtfully looked at all the various aspects. We owe that to the world before we begin making pronouncements we owe it to be as as thorough as we can and that's tough in a digital world yeah. that that's tough when a thing pops up and there's a reaction to it immediately and the the church wants to be a voice in that and have a voice in that and the church needs to have a voice in that we just want to make sure that it is thoughtful that it is reflective And that it is, um, I, I don't know if I want to use the word balance, that it is carefully considered.
0: Yeah, we will, as we continue on as Presbyterians, have to grapple with what defines our identity as Presbyterians. What is the best of the tradition that we've inherited that we will need to carry with us as part of who we are, as our culture, as our people, as what we allow to define and to define in the sense of all of those different pieces, the thoughtfulness, the theological um, clarity, the desire to be a connected church. What part of these traditions are we going to carry forward with us as an, as our part of our core identity? And what things— are the the aspects of our ministries and our programs and our worship style that we have done historically that we need to either experiment with or we need to continue or we need to simply um, try new branches. And those conversations, I think, are empowered by this decentralization that we've talked about, Clint, but it also in many ways challenges it because the farther down that we push, the more that we allow congregations to experiment, the harder sometimes it is for us to learn from one another. Right? It can be hard for us to hear what First Press Sioux City is doing because we don't see them as often, because those stories get told with less frequency. And That is another challenge we're going to have to overcome. If we want our identity to be Presbyterians who are connected, well, what are the mechanisms of doing that if you don't have a strong corporate ladder that passes things up and down, more often down than up? And uh, those are things that I'm not sure we have ready answers for.
1: Sure. And the idea that you go to a Presbytery meeting every month or every quarter and and that makes you connected to other congregations— is just really not, it, it's just no longer an idea. I don't know if it ever worked. I suspect there was a time that it did. Um, I think of the pastor I grew up with, he loved presbytery meetings. That was his church, his fellowship. That's where he saw other pastors. That's where they shared stories. I don't know if those meetings continue to function like that for people. Maybe they do for some, um, but. I think to many of us, they feel like something that takes a lot longer mm-hmm. than it should without accomplishing any real change. And um, that's not a criticism of our presbytery. It's it's a critique, I guess, of that broader structure. And so um, are we Presbyterian because we do Presbyterian things, or is there something inherent in our belief system, in the way that we approach the gospel that makes us Presbyterian. And for me, it's, it's a do versus a be question. You know, um, I, I remember for many years as we discussed a second service here and maybe incorporating a different style, people said things like, well, I don't like that. That's not mm-hmm. Presbyterian. What, do you, what isn't Presbyterian? Well, having a drum set. Mm -hmm. Isn't Presbyterian? Well, are you? Do you mean that making music, making praise music, singing praise to God, and using drums is somehow unPresbyterian? Yes, it isn't. Why isn't it Presbyterian? Because we've never done it. But Mm -hmm. but those conversations about do are not generally helpful as we try to understand who we are trying to be, and. I think they're fascinating, but often uh, often they're not entirely helpful. And to me, Michael, this is where the great irony of being Presbyterian lives. You and I've had this conversation many times. Presbyterians are well suited to the age in which we live. We are thoughtful, we're open to new ideas. We do not approach the gospel with a checklist of things you have to believe. We have room for diversity. We have room for disagreement. We have always been able to somehow put people in the pews who call themselves conservative or liberal or this thing or that thing, and we've said we can be church together, and in our day and age, that should be working. Who we are is well-suited to this age, but what we do— is less well-suited. And it's time to find things, new things to do and new ways of doing things without somehow believing that changes who we are. For instance, I I can talk about this the other way. I have a good friend that went to serve as an associate pastor of the church. The the pastor told him we're not going to do prayers of confession anymore. Why not? People don't like them. (laughs) Well, that's That's backwards. Of course people don't like them, but what do we need as people? We need to confess that we're broken. That's the path to healing. That's the path to God. We can't simply not, we have to find a way to do things that reflect who we are, but in ways that work. And I think that's a, a monumental struggle for us in the moment we're in right now.
0: Yeah, and Clint, you speak to that in a way that I think identifies very much the structural challenge of that. The worship, that example is an example of how that's lived out in worship. I think it's maybe readily apparent to everyone in the conversation how that's going to be a challenge as a group of Presbyterians at a presbytery level, a synod, and general assembly. Our structure is going to struggle with that, but it may be too easy for us if we don't slow down and pause to recognize how difficult that is for us individually as members of a congregation, maybe even as someone who would be uncomfortable calling yourself Presbyterian, but goes to a Presbyterian church, it can be a struggle when the very thing that was welcoming, that was challenging, that was engaging for you in the midst of worship or the midst of education or fellowship or whatever it was about the place where you're being fed and you seek to be growing in your faith, when that is the thing that starts to be experimented with, when that's the thing that might change, we're all, I think people at this table included, can become very anxious and uncomfortable in that presence. And what is required is some humility, some patience, some grace. Quite frankly, the the willingness to engage in authentic and honest conversations, that is the best of what it means to be Presbyterian. If, If we can live into that uncomfortable space and we can do so with thoughtfulness and with grace, we are already living into the best of what it means to be Presbyterian. We're living into our identity as people. But We have to identify, name, and be honest about there's going to be challenges down that road. We are going to struggle, not just as a system or group of people who call themselves Presbyterians. We're all going to have a moment where we share some struggle in that, and we seek to, as people of faith, trust Christ to lead us through it.
1: Yeah, I think for me, Michael, one of the ways I frame that is what are our non-negotiables? And one of the areas in which we struggle has to do with when we confuse our preferences for our essential practices. So let me take that example. Presbyterians... Our, we need to confess our sin. That That's a non-negotiable. We believe theologically that we are broken people and that confronting our brokenness is the pathway to grace in Jesus Christ. It does open us to humility and to discipleship and to growth, to confess our tendency to get it wrong, our tendency to judge, our tendency to exclude, our tendency to do all of those things that, that our brokenness leads us to, that's a non-negotiable. Singing with drums or piano,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's a preference. Worship is a non-negotiable. The, the, the way in which we worship has plenty of wiggle room in it. And when we confuse our non-negotiables as a people— with our preferences as individuals, we're going to struggle, and we need to be able to come to a table together and discuss those things in some real ways. So we have a wonderful woman in this church no longer with us who said, the day you bring in a drum set, I'm out. I'm I'm leaving. And I said, do you think God hates drums? She said, no but I do. And right that's a that's a wonderful illustration of the difference. And and presbyterians at the at the individual level, each of us, if we're going to move forward collectively, are going to have to say I don't get to have every preference. I I can't I'm not guaranteed this is about our fundamental convictions, not my individual Preferences, and I think we're going to have to. Um, I think we're going to have to figure that out as we move forward. We we need a space in which everybody can be engaged at some point, and at some moment, everyone says, "Boy, that really worked for me." But you may not get that all the. T- there may be times that the gratitude you have is knowing. Okay, that really worked for my neighbor. That really worked for the young African-American boy in the pew in front of me. That worked for the Hispanic family over there that I'm planning to meet after the service. If we can get to something like that, then we are, um, in my estimation, making great progress.
0: Yeah, this is an extreme oversimplification, but I don't know any other way into it, is that when the church lives unto itself and towards its own end, it will always lead us away. If it's about our preference and preserving the things that make us comfortable, which aren't all bad things, I don't want to be overly critical of that. There, there are some things that, that may help us to connect to the living God, but it should never be about us. The gospel compels us. Jesus Christ calls us to live outside of ourselves. When we come to the moment of offering in a service, that is a moment that should every week reorient us so that we might remember the one who showed us that God's will is self-sacrifice. Jesus Christ, lived, living into God's best plan, gave his life for us the expectation is that the servant is no greater than their master. We are called to love and serve others full stop. The moment we make the life of church about personal preference, place of comfort, advancing the things that we like about the church, we are failing to live into the gospel call to live beyond ourselves. And friends, we're doing this study of the book of Proverbs. It's interesting in that study Um, wisdom is often very difficult to grasp. It often falls through the hand. What's right in one setting isn't right in another. So, I'm not making uh, eternal edicts that can be applicable in every moment of every congregation or any congregation. There are some times that discerning the Spirit of God is it requires wisdom and diligence and prayer and humility. But friends, if it ever turns us towards ourselves, if it ever turns church inward, that is a pretty surefire definition that we've not lived into the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we should pause and reflect and change.
1: Yeah, and that, in the language that I use, Michael, that's the necessity of the non-negotiables to say that there are things that cannot be compromised. There are ideas, there are beliefs that we cannot sacrifice in the pursuit of growth. It, yes, we could do lots of things that may bring in people, but if we, if we only chase preferences and if we sacrifice our core to do it, then we're no longer church, yeah. We're just doing what we think people want. And if we start with the core, if we can start with the gospel, and if we understand what that is, then we will find lots of ways to connect that with people in ways that are meaningful to them and attractive to them. And that is what the church should do. What the church should not do is start the other way and say, what do people want? Let's give them that instead of the gospel. And I, I think one of the fundamental, if, if I were to put my finger on the core struggles of the PCUSA, is that if you ask Presbyterians what our non-negotiables are, what is the core of the gospel that we cannot sacrifice, I think the average Presbyterian may struggle I'm not sure that we, as congregations and and as denomination, have communicated very well what it is that we consider um, irreplaceable, non-negotiable, where the lines are. We have, in the attempt to be sort of all things to everyone, made it difficult for the people of our church to say, this is the line that we don't cross. And I know that that's troubling language, and we could spend a lot of time parsing it out and what do we mean and what do we not mean. But I think fundamentally, it, when you're in a moment of struggle, it's easy to believe that fixing the issues lives out where the issues are. We just need to get more people in yeah. church. We just need to get a praise band instead of an organist. We just need to make people wear shorts instead of ties. Those aren't the thing. Those are, those are symptomatic things. They're not fundamental things. And I think one of the problems we struggle with at the congregational level is we're trying to fix symptoms without addressing the actual problem itself.
0: I think my final word here, Clint, is if someone's joining this conversation, in some ways, the way that we frame this may make it sound so simple. Um, And part of that is because uh, it's been a blessing that you and I, in so many ways, um, do come to this conversation with some very similar convictions. And the truth is, we both know people who would come to this conversation and and they would have differing ways of engaging with this content. They would frame it differently. They would suggest that there are different roads that the Presbyterian Church is going to need to take towards health. And at our best, I think that's great. It's good that there are people who are out there who are thinking deeply, who are seeking to find and, and to celebrate the core identity of being Presbyterian as people who are called by, known by, loved by Jesus Christ. The only way forward is going to look like Presbyterians listening to one another, uh, engaging in meaningful conversations to try to hold that core identity in a connected, humble, loving way but also to be willing to move beyond the level of comfort for the love of neighbor. And you're going to see that happening uh, as time goes on in our own congregation, certainly. I think we've seen ways in which we continue to try to do that, not just in this last six months, but for years before my arrival. Um, That's going to be happening on a national level as well. And there's no way of predicting what that will look like in terms of structures or what it'll look like in the life of every congregation. It's going to affect different communities differently, but the sure and, and complete hope that we as people of faith can have is that Jesus does not leave the church. Jesus will be with his people, and we can trust he'll be with us in this season, whatever may come.
1: Yeah, and my last thought, Michael, is... I want to suggest, and you know i I'm biased in this because I occupy the space that I'm about to um, credit. I do not think the path of the Presbyterian Church into the future will be salvaged by the structures in in other words. I don't think this is a top-down fix. I, I don't think in the hierarchy of our system, the General Assembly is going to come up with something that trickles down and creates a kind of reformation and renovation to the Presbyterian Church as a whole. Now, the, the denomination at that level is working hard to provide opportunities and education and direction, and they're doing their best, and and I applaud that. But I think, ultimately, if there is a path of change for the Presbyterian Church, it's from the ground up. And the quickest, in my estimation, way to a, a different outcome is for congregations to create spaces where people have an experience of Jesus Christ in a vibrant living community. And when that begins happening, when we get more of our congregations being places of life and wholeness, and diversity and learning to love each other despite our differences and making people feel welcome and serving their non-negotiables in ways that are real in their context, that's when it changes. This is not, for me, a not. this is not a top-down process. This is very much something that gets addressed from the, the very ground level And works its way up. And the fastest way to health in the Presbyterian church, as I see it, is to have more and more healthy, vibrant churches. And that means change at the level that change is probably the hardest. And therefore, I think it's very demanding upon people who sit in our places of leadership, people who lead at a congregational level where it's really, I think, where the rubber meets the road. And at some point, if we can't do that, if we can't get more and more of our churches being places that are thriving instead of struggling, then there's no fix that can come down from on high. It just isn't going to be able to help us. We, we, if we can't move toward tithing, if we can't move toward prayer, if we can't move toward faithfulness at the local level, then I'm not sure ultimately that we're going to be able to um, see the kind of changes that will allow us to survive into the future.
0: That's well said, Clint. Well, thank you for joining us in this conversation. Uh, We hope that there's been something that has been engaging. Uh, Maybe it helps you chart your own path and your understanding of what it means to be Presbyterian and worshiping and serving and loving within a Presbyterian context. Friends, uh, we know how simple this conversation really is. There's so much more depth uh, beyond what we could possibly touch in an hour. And yet, in the midst of it, I think the simple truth um, is, as it often does, surfaces, and that is that we are about being people who serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we do that well as a community, I, I think that we will continue to be able to have a witness to a world that desperately needs it, and we do that not by our strength but by His.
1: Yeah, and thank you for being part of the conversation. Love to hear your thoughts, ideas. Send them to us, email, leave comments. We very much um, understand that we don't know anything, and we learn more as we pursue the the conversation. So if you'd like to join in it, we'd love to hear your voice.
0: Well, friends, that's all for us. We look forward to having our next conversation with you next week, Wednesday at 9 o'clock Central Standard Time. But until then, be blessed. Thanks.